0: You've got to trust your team and you've got to put people around you that you can trust. And then in self-reflection, I've got to let go. You can't do it all. My team is doing what they need to do because they want to see this company succeed too. And that's something I didn't know could exist, right? For me, a job was a job was a job. To see people vested and buying into a vision has changed everything.
1: a political campaign consultant currently working on a new startup called campaign X collective which is generally in the progressive direct mail and targeted communication space I enjoyed hearing about his path to entrepreneurship Joe is working at establishing an egalitarian participatory and transparent business it'll be interesting to see how that works out his is a good interview well worth your listen so after word from our sponsor, my interview with Joe Lestingi of Campaign X Collective.
0: Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount.
1: Joe, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Yeah, uh, my name is Joe Listingy. I um, am the managing director of a new uh, Democratic consulting firm called Campaign X Collective. We're sort of an evolution out of some work I did with my previous business partner Liz Chatterton. We were the Chatterton Group. We became Chatterton Listingy Creative Strategies, and now we've merged. Now we've become this. Once uh, Liz retired in December, I grew up sort of around the country. Uh, which was fitting for my career in politics because I started moving around the country to run campaigns. My father always kept us on the move as a kid. And I found that as I moved through the campaign lifestyle, I adapted quite easily, right? Um, It's been nice to be able to do that. I married my college sweetheart. We have two great kids. Uh, One's four and one is seven, a boy and a girl. We live in Fairfax, Virginia with... uh, with no family around, which is disappointing, especially during COVID. So we actually had to fly people in and have them drive up to help us with child support during the pandemic. But all in all, uh, we're happy with where we are. I'm an avid baseball fan. I don't know if you could tell. Uh, I know you can. Looking over my shoulders here, you'll see my World Series tickets um, for when the Nats won the World Series. So I'm a, I'm a huge baseball fan. I actually keep a collection of uh, Louisville Slugger mini bats in my office that have all my wins throughout my career on them. So uh, yeah, I'm a little bit of a fanatic now that I said thus all out loud for the first time.
1: I don't know if I've missed more than a game or two of the Nats this season, and certainly not in 2019.
0: That was a very exciting year.
1: You couldn't have written a plot that was more exciting, or you know, the turnaround from the beginning to you know getting through the playoffs in the World Series by a hair each each time. It was just so fun.
0: Amazing. I can't I still remember where I was. Um, I I was actually at the Marlins game where we started to turn it around that season. And I remember I was just telling the story to a friend last night. Um, We were out in the red seats out in the outfield at the tables where you can order food. And I was going ballistic because I was like, the season's done. And I uh, was packing it in. And and, um, I think his name was Justin Bohr for the Marlins who just hit a home run like right in front of our faces. And I was like, that's it. We're done. And then we stayed the whole game and the game turned around and we won the game. And who knew like that was going to be the start of the turnaround. I mean, what a magical year. And I'm so happy I got to experience it.
1: Although I was at the playoff game in an earlier year where we gave up a six run lead to the Cardinals. And I was in the stadium for that game. I don't know if you remember that one, but that was just heartbreaking at the other end of the spectrum. But anyway, I should probably turn you to to the subject at hand, even though I love talking baseball, it seems like you got your start mainly as a campaign manager and did a number of campaigns. Tell me how that came about and what you sort of learned in that role, which you did for a number of cycles.
0: Back early when I was in college, it's funny because this is a full circle story. When I was um, in college, I came up to DC because I got accepted to a program at GW for the summer. I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, I was going to be an international lawyer, actually. I wanted to study international law. And I took this program thinking it was going to be a Mr. Smith comes to Washington type of how bills become laws type thing. And what I found out was I had joined actually a campaign school program. What they did was you had class during the day. And then for the rest of the time, you had a practicum where you had an instructor that walked you through how to run a campaign. So everyone who was in your your practicum like took a role on a campaign. And uh, my instructor was Liz Chatterton. At the end of the class, when we were all done, we did Ronnie Musgrove. That was our campaign. It was Ronnie Musgrove's run for Mississippi governor's re-election. Our plan was perfect, but no one believed that Ronnie Musgrove was going to beat Haley Barber in the general election. So when we did the presentation against the other team, we lost because no one believed that Ronnie Musgrove had a chance, no matter how good our fake plan was. The thing with that class is everyone who participated in that class knows whether or not they won their final thing and they never let go of it. And I'm true of that. I'm very, very much the the story of that. So leaving that class, Liz pulled me aside at one time and said, listen, you get this. You understand numbers. You understand how to look at electorates. You should go volunteer on a campaign. Um, You're going back to the University of Georgia. And there's a gentleman who's running for Congress. His name is John Barrow. Um, You should go volunteer on his campaign. And I was like, done. Got home, uh, immediately went into the office and was like, I was told I was supposed to show up here and do something. So here I am. They gave me typical volunteer projects. And then from there, I was like, I graduated from college and I needed a job that paid, not just a volunteer job. So I ended up joining the DCCC. And then my my career w- like started off in politics. I packed everything I owned into a Dodge Neon, including my dog in the back seat. It was a two-door Dodge Neon too, which tells you just how small this car really was. And I drove to Lubbock, Texas, which if you've never been to Lubbock, Texas, it's exactly what you think it is. We did campaigns in Lubbock and then around Texas for the redistricting that Tom DeLay did. And coming off of that, I was like, man, I love this. This was a lot of fun. I want to stay in this career. So I called Liz. I said, Liz, what do I do now? And she said, well, you need to break up with your girlfriend, because I had a girlfriend at the time, because you're going to be living on the road. Um, you need to come to Virginia. And you need to manage a House of Delegates race. And I said, okay. So I did not break up with my girlfriend. My girlfriend and I moved to Northern Virginia. And I managed my first – I got put on this race in Northern Virginia that was a – a Democrat hadn't won that seat in forever. And this was around 2005, so it was right when the shift in Virginia was starting. And uh, we were watching the Republican primary on the other side. And it was the sort of pre-Tea Party young guy against – an establishment veteran, long-term serving Republican. And the kid won. So the Democrats immediately said, we're gonna go after the seat. So the gentleman who was just supposed to be a name on the ballot, who was my candidate, we ran an amazing campaign, we got funding late, and we pulled this thing off. And I was like, this is, I mean, talk about like your first hit for free. I stumbled into an amazing opportunity the first time.
1: What campaign was that, Joe?
0: His name was Chuck Caputo. It was HD 67. It was Western Fairfax County. LBJ was the last Democrat to win anything in Western Fairfax. We were the first one to do it. And uh, it was a year in which a lot of Democrats won in Virginia. So my career was off to the races. I got advice again from Liz, called her up. I said, what do I do next? And she said, break up with your girlfriend, go run another campaign. So I didn't break up with my girlfriend. I went from there to Lincoln, Nebraska, which goes to show you how these careers can go anywhere, right? So I started managing congressional campaigns, came back home for a while, Uh, Went back to Chicago, ran Melissa Bean in Chicago, her reelection in 08, which was awesome because it was a congressional race, but it was in Chicago and the world kind of revolved around Chicago in 2008, right? Because of Obama. Eventually got married to that girlfriend that I never broke up with and she's now my wife. So as I was running campaigns for a while, as campaign operatives often know, there's this period where you're unemployed and it usually happens between November and March and April. And you kind of think to yourself, well, I got to explain what I do to my parents because they don't understand why I'm unemployed every year. I got to find healthcare. I got to do all these things like that. So my wife caught me during one of those windows when I was unemployed and she was like, Hey, I want to join the foreign service. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. What am I going to do? I have no idea where my next job's coming from. Let's do it. So I took a big two-year gap in my career, uh, moved overseas with my wife. When I came back, immediately got right back into it again, and then eventually joined up with Liz uh, and her consulting agency. So my mentor became my boss. And then after a few years of working with her, I I asked to become a partner. So my mentor became my boss and then became my partner. And the management side of things brought me into all this. Being able to look at direct mail through the eyes of a campaign manager, the targeting aspects, the financial aspects, it shaped all of it. It shaped the way I view electorates. Um, And especially, you know, starting at the state ledge level, which I don't know. I mean, I feel like sometimes managers kind of skip that level. Um, Starting at the state ledge level, I think is critical to understanding like the very fundamentals that we do. And that's sort of how it got me here.
1: What do you think makes a good campaign manager for state ledge or congressional?
0: I think it's interesting. Most of the campaign managers at the state ledge level these days, they're really young. So they're, they're, they're learning management. And I think that is important. So there's not only the number one thing that I always advise managers to keep in mind is like your job is to manage the budget. Make sure that the money is in place, that the money is going where it needs to go, We go through exercises where we'll check expenditures by department, because like most of them don't even think about breaking their campaigns down into departments, but I encourage them to break them down into departments and then manage those departments and the money that flows into those departments to make sure that one department isn't bloated with cash and one department isn't throttled with no cash, right? There is a balance between all of these, and a good manager can see that, and and their job is to make sure that the money is going where it needs to go so that each arm, leg, Know, body part of the campaign is getting the blood it needs to run, but then also putting in key people to manage those and trust the team that you build, right? As you go to the congressional level, your staff is expanding, your priorities are expanding, but as long as you're staying focused on where the money needs to go and you're trusting the team you put around you to manage that and implement the strategy, um, that's key. And it's sometimes that's hard for young operatives to think about because they want to be part of it they want to be in there they want to do it themselves and they've really got to learn to delegate and they've got to learn to do their job on the team and if you set your team up for success then the the team will eventually it's going to impress you right it's going to show you that it can do what it does and what it needs to do the classic example i give everybody is if you remember the scene from the west wing where uh josh is running the santos campaign and it's it's election day i can't remember her name now but his girlfriend in the show like duct tapes him to a chair and says, Don't do anything today. Today is not your day. We've got everything covered. Like that's important, I think, for managers to to recognize. Like you have to do your job so that the people around you can do their job, including your candidate, right? Like you gotta let your candidate do their thing too and, and not try to interfere too much. Things go awry that way. You lose trust that way. So I think the key for them is definitely understanding that you are a manager. Right. And you've got to allow your staff to do their work.
1: It's obvious that Liz Chatterton was a, just a crucial contact and collaborator through your career. And that's in spite of targeting your relationship repeatedly, it sounds like, with your wife to be. But I assume she was just uh, emphasizing the commitment that you needed to make yes. to, the, to the job. Tell me a little bit about that relationship, because it says something about her. I I don't know her, but it says something about her that she had the ego to allow you to grow from, you know, from a green student to a partner. Tell me a little about about what she's like to work with and and what her role was in the space along the way.
0: I think every operative out there, every campaign manager out there needs they're Liz Chatterton, and and what I mean by that is mentorship is critical in this industry. I like to joke that that most people look at politics like they do doctors and lawyers. If you watch them on TV, you know how it works, and that's not always the that's not at all the case. Let's just be honest. The way campaigns are run, the way politics um, in this country uh, move and progress through the electoral cycles is not what you see on TV. It's not what you read in books. You need that life experience, and what Liz provided for me, and I hope. And I wish that every, everybody gets this opportunity is, you know, I would go out and do my thing and then I check in with her and I'd say, Hey, this is what I did. What do you think I should do next? And sometimes the advice was spot on with where I wanted to go, but she helped lay out the stepping stones for me and said, look, you can go this way or you can go this way. Either way is going to get you to some goal that you've mentioned to me in the past that you wanted to do. You just got to follow it. And she often said, when I was a student of hers, we were in the elevator at her shop, which was at the time it was called Bates and Eamon. And we were, I, the, we had wrapped up for the day and we were headed down the elevator. And she always tells me, she said, Joe, you looked at me and you said, how do I get to where you are in your career? And And that's when the pack everything you own in your car, drive out to work on campaigns, break up with your girlfriend sort of narrative started. She reminded me that the day we became partners and she reminded me of that the the when we when our partnership dissolved for her retirement. And and she always remembered that day and for me that was a moment of 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 her saying, "Look, you know, I I think let's go back to the management analogy, right?" Like she saw me and what I could do and she she had faith in what I could do and she wanted to foster it. So she gave me lead to do that and she trusted me to do that. So when I joined her firm, the very first time she said, "This is this is dumb. Come join my firm. You're going to help me make money and you're going to do good work. So, so come join. And, and then while I was working with her, there was always this sort of light guiding hand to say, well, maybe we should consider this other strategy with a candidate or why don't you sit second chair on this one? And then you can run first chair on this other client and, and we can see how they interact and work together. Politically, she allowed me the space to grow my political knowledge where she really, really helped me though. Was in the business world and understanding the business of what we do. We are all getting into this as um, you know former political operatives, not as MBAs. She really helped me understand overhead and running a company, and the key to our business is managing cash flow, given our boom bust cycle of income. So she she let me see all of that before I became a partner. And when I became a partner, she let me. She, I mean, we were partners, so she, we went through it. Every quarter we would run through our finances, and that was huge. So that was the, the business growth. And then, personally, you know, Liz working with her helped me understand that my experience is not the typical experience. Growing through her career, she faced challenges that I never had to face being a woman, being an entrepreneur, being the first woman to open a direct mail firm in this country on the Democratic side of the aisle she faced roadblocks constantly she would knock on doors and no one would answer and you would think to yourself as democrats you know we should be open and progressive and sexism doesn't exist in our world and i'm pretty positive everyone knows that it still does but to see it firsthand being a you know a white guy uh, in this business and and realizing like i've got to do more to expand opportunities for the younger lizs out there right the underheard unheard operatives that are discounted because of their gender or their sexual identity or because of their race led massively to the influence that of how we are shaping the new company and how we're adding employee ownership to our, to our model. Um, and how we're making sure that everyone knows they're welcome here and that everyone will have a chance to succeed similar to how she let me grow. And, um, so I guess it's kind of a pay it forward her influence, um, on my business, on my uh, experience and on my career is unmatched. I can never pay her back for that.
1: It sounds like you got lucky in that regard. It's
0: extremely, extremely lucky.
1: I'm sure she derived a lot of benefit from having you around too. It's, those are great stories, I think, when people are able to assist each other and grow together. You haven't really said much about the scope of what this sequence of companies that you worked on with her and before her did, is it mainly just direct mail or was it broader than that? What did you do and how is that useful out there yeah. in, in winning?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, Bates Neiman was a direct mail firm. And when they split and Liz started the Chatterton Group, it was solely a direct mail firm too. And when I joined the firm, um, this was back at the very beginning of the sort of digital age, the digital onslaught that was coming. And, and Liz and I talked about, listen, there are two things that these two mediums have in common, um, and that is the ability to target voters. So um, we looked at the digital space and we said, look, there's a reason why the digital space could be tied to two industries. It could be tied to TV or it could be tied to direct mail. And TV made sense because it provided the ability to, to take TV ads and target them a little bit more. And then for us, digital made sense because it allowed us to take our super targeted direct mail that had to go to a physical address, but then provide a broadcast element to it. So if we could create uh, digital mail pieces, if you will, and use those as advertisements, then you know maybe we s- could see some success with our communication strategies, especially for our lower sort of budget clients. And so when we transitioned from Chatterton Group into Chatterton Listingy, the big addition was bringing on digital digital aspects to that. And so we use digital as sort of a supplement for our clients' And we quickly found that this, th- while it was good for our clients, it was actually not a very good business model because the digital space is so fractured that the definition of the word itself is not clear, even to clients. So, our purpose in the digital space was to take your primary communications, your direct mail piece, and create digital versions of it so that the imagery was seamless between a recipient's experience. Maybe you've seen that picture on a mail piece, but maybe you also saw it on your Facebook page. You're not sure where you saw it, but you got the message. Um, And that was sort of the approach we took. And then as we grew, we realized like doing digital by itself was not a profit making effort. Um, So we backed off of just doing it. If a client didn't hire us for mail, we would still do their digital. We backed off of that and only provided digital services sort of to our direct mail vendors or direct mail clients. Now, as we evolved and CXC came into play, uh, my new company uh, came into play. My leadership team and I came together and we sort of looked at the market and where we think the market's headed. And we made some adjustments. We are still a direct mail firm. Um, It's going to be 90% of our revenue, 85 to 90% of our revenue for the next few years. But we don't see the market staying there. We see the demands from clients shifting to be more in line with the way their voters are receiving communications, which is multi-layered, so and and it's and, and much more fragmented. So the new agency is designed that we can bring a digital element back into the fold at much more sort of ferocity and and application. We can get it out there with much more uh, support behind it, much more budget. So we we start taking our direct mail budgets and making sure that digital is part of those communications. And then who knows where this thing goes in the future? I mean, we've got field market tests out there, um, surveys out there to ask people sort of how they're interacting and what their requests are. I do think that the day of the you know sole direct mail firm is, on the, at least on the Democratic side of the aisle, I can't speak for the other side, but the day of like a sole pure direct mail firm is, is going away. And as you can tell, like the, the thread that binds all these together is the ability to target, right? To make sure that, you know, voter A can see our message. If we don't want voter B to see our message, we restrict that, right? It's about getting the right message to the right voters, something that TV can't do, right? So that is the thread that has started with Liz that has carried through to our joint venture together and is now continuing forward with, with our new agency.
1: Why the name that you picked and what's the sort of founding story there?
0: So it's funny, when Liz um, triggered her retirement with me, um, which we knew was coming, we had built the firm to, to sort of set up for her retirement, I started keeping notes under the name Firm X, just because I didn't have a name. And as I went through the exercises with my leadership team, we were going back and forth on, on all these names. And when we did the market analysis, and we thought about where this firm could go in the future, we realized that what this firm does is it is it it helps our clients who have fears that of unknowns. A lot of our clients are first time candidates running for office. Um, They don't know what it's like, similar to an operative, right? Who thinks they've seen it on TV and they know what this like. It's not like that when you get into the sausage making. So we face this, this reality that our clients have this fear of what's out there and it's this unknown unknown, the things they don't know, they don't know and the things they know they don't know. And as we were going through, we said, well, You know what if we went through some of the trendy names like naming it after a saying or a phrase um stronger together or whatever those types of names which have their place and we backed off and we said look data is much more of what we do how can we represent unknown uh fears for our clients and data and we were like well x makes sense here it's just pure circumstance that I had x out there x represents unknowns in mathematical equations it represents unknowns um for people in the world and but it also represents a journey right um it represents the end of a map it represents if x is marking the spot it's where we're headed so so we said look we know we do campaign work um, and we know our clients sometimes face fears of things they don't know we want them want them to know that we're constantly working on solving whatever their problem may be and that problem could be x it could be unknown voters that are out there It could be support they didn't even know they had so as we were building this out, we looked at the name Campaign X, and and we said, the X gives us freedom to answer whatever questions our clients have. Um, and then at the end, when we were building out the employee ownership model of the company, we realized we're a true collective. Um, all of us, no matter who you talk to at our firm, whether it's an associate or myself as the managing director, all own a piece of the firm. What we realized too, and backing up even further, is like when Liz... Retired. What is Chatterton and Listingy without Chatterton? Right. Like there's there's no. And then if I retired, Listingy goes away and then I've got staff that's just sitting out there. So we so we 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 wanted to make a collective effort that outlasts all of us at the agency, hopefully. Knock on wood. Right. Or as Liz would say, God willing, and the crick don't rise. We could create an, a, a living organism that is owned by its parts, that that integrates its employees into the fabric and the culture of it um and everyone contributes and then you know becomes something that has divisions that can help clients answer all their questions that they have um, when it comes to communications and strategy so we started off with this concept of problems we ended up at campaign x collective and then we realized that the x could be substituted for a lot of things and then when our art director got hold of it because he was vehemently opposed originally to having x in our name he thought it was too it was too dark it was too unknown and and when he got hold of it, he created our branding, which fit exactly into what our, our vision and our research was. And that was about creating sort of all this noise in the world and finding the signals that are out there um, and, and finding the things that tie these things together, find the hidden images that might exist. And then also the ability to look at you know voters and electorates as a collection of different X's and different unknowns. A large part of this was based on the research we started back in 2016 over voter turnover and voter, voter churn that occurs in the electorate. And we feel that that's a massive unknown that's not being talked about enough in our business. So we're leaning into it.
1: Well, I do kind of like your colorful, blurry X made out of X's.
0: Our meta X, yeah. My designer's like, this is our meta X. And I was like, this is great. I like it. Yeah, I mean, it could represent an electorate. And that's the ultimate goal. One day I want to be able to visualize that into an electorate because each X in that, uh, there are differences, different types of Xs that are in that meta X to represent different voting groups or different problems or whatever.
1: I've uh, started a couple companies and faced that choice about ownership and how does one share or not share Something and how do you divide up profits if there are any? And God willing, <laughs> and and you know, not everybody brings the same uh, resources or experience into a firm. Like you, you had been a principal, and you know, a junior staff person uh, might be just learning. How do you decide who gets what and what share? And how, how did you tackle that complicated? Kind of, it's it's both a statement of values and a it has real consequences for how people view their stake in the firm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we went at it from two angles. Number one, and I think the in looking at sort of over the the winter in twenty twenty. I called a lot of peers, I caught a lot of colleagues, both in and outside the industry, and said, listen, I need to check the health of my company. How do I check the health of my company? And this was before uh, we had actually formulated the, the, the employee ownership model. So I got several suggestions, and I finally landed on one that I really liked. So I started analyzing our company's aspects over the years, and sort of the health at the time that I was looking at, like Windows, like basically quarters. It's like who was driving each quarter, and and what I found was um, a lot of a lot of our industry is very personality driven by the principal, right? Um, we have a lot of named firms. We're almost like law firms, right? Like we have these these name firms that are really driven driven by the principal, and you know a lot of clients do want that. They want that principal on their calls. They want that principal serving them. And as I was going back and looking at how we succeeded best, I realized that the principal does has a very important role. The principal can't do their job if your production team is not operating fully. When we look at the volume of work we produce, here's an example. We have 24 months is our basic financial cycle I looked at. And we make 60% of our money in three months of that 24 months. If I don't have a production team, that is top notch and can handle that volume in that 3 month period it all falls apart and then the next the next 21 months after that are just wrecked i have these supports that i lean on hard they get no glory they're the offensive linemen of my industry and 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 they get no glory and they get usually at most firms and i've worked at other firms at most firms they get you know a bonus to be determined at some point in time and i backed up and i said listen these guys are just as critical as me getting in a living room and sealing a deal. None of it carries forward without them. So we need to figure out a way to make sure that their extra income, their shares of the of the profits we make aren't just arbitrarily driven by a personality. So I went through and what we created was a tiered system Inside the agency, most people would look at it and say, oh, that looks like an organizational chart. But we we call it an accountability chart because it goes from the bottom up instead of the top down. And what we determined was, okay, you know, this tier of employees across all of our divisions, they are entry level employees. There's a set salary range for them and a set uh, set of shares that they can choose or that they get, right? They're, they don't have a really a big choice in what they're offered. As you climb up through the various levels, there's an associate level, there's a manager level, there's an executive level, and there's a director level. As you go up, your choice in salaries becomes larger. So at the highest levels, you can choose between three salaries, which come with corresponding share values. So you can pick what's right for you. We publicize these. Um, we, we will, uh, publicize everyone's, we're going through a big hiring binge right now, but we will publicize everyone's salaries so that people know what everyone's making at the firm. And there's no resentment and there's no, uh, there's no discrimination and, and everyone can see sort of where their money's going as a client and the employee can choose the right combination for them. So if you take a higher salary, you just get a lower share count. If you take a lower salary, you get a higher share count. And I did financial analysis over the, 10 years of TCG and CLCS to make sure that there was a balance there. And if you take a little risk, you're probably going to make a little bit more. But if you need the stability in your life and you need that bump in your salary, you can take it. And it's it, for us, it's non-negotiable. Everyone knows exactly what they're signing up for. There is no pressure to take one or the other. You can take whatever is right for you and your place in life now. And then as you grow within the company, it changes and you can, you can uh, get into more shares or you can reduce your salary. There are ways to, to move up and down throughout the ranks. So for us, we realized, you know, someone brings in a $2 million client, that's amazing. But that $2 million client does not get off the ground if we don't have the st- support staff behind it. And that person can't run just that client by themselves. They need the help of others around them. So that's the approach we took. You know, God willing, this works out and and we don't fail and, and this can be a successful model into the future. That's how we approached it. And that's the decision we made.
1: I could imagine that, uh, salaries being secret could lead to less concern than salaries being public. Like if you know what everyone makes and you happen to be a person who's making less because you're in a different tier, but you think you work harder than someone in a higher tier or you're more valuable. I mean, you could imagine how that, uh, that openness, which sounds amazing could also backfire. What, what in practice have you experienced so far, or is it too soon to tell?
0: In full disclosure, it's a little too soon to tell. So what what we did, um, number one, we, we want to be upfront with our employees that your salary is based on sort of like what your accountability requirements are, what your job does, um, and that it's not based on your ability to negotiate with me, which you know comes fraught with all its own problems. We've disclosed fully to anyone who's even applying. Like, this is what you're signing up for. This is where we expect you to go. And this is how you climb and what the difference is between the tiers. Like, if you're an associate, how do you become a manager, right? Like, there's a very clear path to do that. We had a meeting, uh, our first team retreat. So everyone knew this was coming. And our first team retreat was about two weeks after we launched the company because we had uh, clients that were active at the first half of this year here in Virginia. We operated CLCS for the first six months. But after the launch of the new company, the first team retreat, we all sat down. I put the accountability chart up on the board with the salary ranges for each department. We went through and talked about everyone said what they made um, and the share value they chose. And I had goosebumps. I was nervous that this was this is where it all fell apart when we came out of that meeting there was no one said anything no one approached me uh, about questions everyone kind of knew because we had laid the groundwork like this is where we were they all knew the salary ranges but for the first time we put them up on the board so that they all could look at them in a room and then have to look at each other i was super nervous it could still backfire one day of all the people at our company i make the most and i am i'm making $90,000 right that's just that's how much i make everyone has their tiers underneath that and all you know people also know like this is what i signed up for So,
1: but I assume you, you have a a bigger share in profits.
0: I have more shares than everyone else at the agency right now. Yes. As we hire their shares come out of mine, right? So it's a distribution as we go.
1: Yeah. So how does this help you get the Jaguar that the other owners of political consultancies have in their garage?
0: (laughs) I have a, 2012 Volkswagen Passat. If anyone's interested, I'm looking to unload it. Um, It's also a manual, by the way. I think this is an important distinction um, because when we did this, and I tell everyone in interviews, like if you're coming here looking to make $200,000 as a consultant, it's not going to happen. But what we give up in our salary, we are making back in something else. So we have established six very strong core values. And those core values are shaped Um, by who we are and what we want to do and actually what gets us up and going every day uh, so that we can feel good about the work we do and who we work for. So what people, I guess, pay for with the Jaguar and the comforts it brings, I feel good that our team is all rowing in the same direction. We all have, have very shared interests. We all have these shared values and that each team member feels good that they are contributing to the fabric of the company. One of our core values is candor. I always argue that that's the one core value that we all probably are most uncomfortable with, but is one we will continue to work to perfect and hopefully grow, you know, as better people. So for us, um, we're going to make money. That's not really up for debate. Hopefully we do our job, right? We continue forward with the skills we have. We're going to make money, but what you're getting in return are better benefits at your workplace you're getting a sense of comfort that you have a say in the direction of the company, that your contribution to the company is not just a contribution to my bottom line as the owner, as the, as the majority shareholder, right? Um, and that there are paths for you out there. So we have 401ks for our employees. We pay 100% of healthcare. We have the share ownership model, right? We all work remote, which I found I was nervous about. Liz and I never wanted that when we were t- partners. We always wanted to drag everyone into our Alexandria office. Now I've got employees in North Carolina. I just hired a, a new gentleman down in Atlanta. Like now I have a diversity of hiring out there that has opened up a whole new world to me in the pandemic. I guess that's one thing I can thank is it provided a ton of software solutions to my real problems that I was experiencing. So yeah, no Jaguars for me, I guess.
1: We'll see. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to set up shares. One of them can be just the share, a share in the yearly profit or quarterly profit. Another would be, sort of actual ownership, which has to do with control of the company and say what you would obtain if it was sold. What kind of shares are you talking about here when you're talking about share?
0: Yeah. So we're a C Corp. So we have actual shares registered at the state of Virginia and um, actually have everyone's um, share certificates here, stock certificates here. They get actual shares now there is a vesting system, right? Um, you don't just sign up at my company and then own part of it. You come in for the first four years of your employment with us. We hold the shares in escrow, and what we do is similar to what you were just describing. We scrape the dividend off the top of those shares, and that's sort of your bonus. You get whenever the shares pay a dividend, you get a you get your your cut of that. After four years, um, your your shares are eligible for vestment, so you can either buy them outright if you want to, or there is a time investment that can occur uh, as an option. Um, and then those shares are yours. They have value. We, we will go through company valuations ever so often on a regular basis, right? To determine the, the value of the shares. Um, and they're yours. You can borrow against them. Um, they are non-voting shares for the first four years. After four years, they become voting shares. Um, and the goal here is, is that as the... So that's a 12-year commitment to go from employment all the way through to 100% vested voting shares, right? as we grow and at 12 years hopefully we're getting to the point where i'm unloading shares and i'm getting closer to my retirement right and, and and i'm backing down sort of what what liz did with me when liz and i partnered up i was on the upward trajectory of my career and she was looking towards retirement so you know using that as a model again another influence from her in this company um using that as a model hopefully by we, the time we get to that point there are there are shares distributed enough that i'm no longer the majority shareholder there are people contributing. We have a, a true employee ownership model. The way the firm is structured, we have a visionary manager and an integrating manager. Um, we don't have one of those roles filled yet. Eventually, my goal is that um, when we get past and off the ground, I can move into more of a visionary role to guide the company into the future. And then somebody else can come in and manage the day-to-day operations and, and really make the company hum and provide the departments with the with the resources they need to survive. And that's where we go.
1: I mean, I can definitely imagine this being a real selling point in hiring that kind of openness and uh, kind of a plan for uh, how you grow and also just sort of a more sort of egalitarian structure being a plus to a lot of people. I could also imagine there might be some categories of maybe very entrepreneurial, uh, very ambitious people who could make more elsewhere or who, you know, could be poached away from you because somebody else can sort of target more benefits to that particular individual. Any thought about how you might cope with that or just is that something you take as part of the game and you'll take your losses when they come?
0: I always choke. A priest doesn't trade, you know, celibacy and all of a sudden there's no problems in their world, right? They just trade them for another set of problems. And and we realized that as we go through this. Um, in fact, one of the employees we just offered was like, I'm taking a pay cut to come join you. And I said, I understand that. Please know that that is respected here and heard. I hope one day your shares are making up that difference, right? Because think about it. If you come in and you take a hundred shares, and then as we grow, I have to split the stock, now your 100 just became 200, and you're getting a dividend on each share, right? If you were at 500, now you're now you're at a thousand, and you're getting a dividend on each share, right? So my goal is is when they come to join this, I'm upfront, right? Your shares right now are worth one dollar, right? That's it. <laughs> you don't have any. There, we haven't had a valuation done yet. We are still getting off the ground. We are a startup, but as we grow, as the share grow, price grows, and and you come into f- fruition here hopefully you'll see the benefits of working with us. You'll understand what it's like to work at a value-driven organization. Nowhere in our values is is money really part of this, right? We reserve the right to say no to clients that that don't necessarily meet all of our values or that some of our employees may have problems with. We reserve the right to produce products that we're proud of. And we know what that costs us. And I know that that might cost me an employee in the future. So I make sure that they know when they sign up, like this is how it is. And if you're just not the right fit for us, you're just, we understand, like you're going to grow and you're going to, if you are more entrepreneurial, please go chase your dreams. Hopefully, again, thinking of Liz Chatterton, hopefully if you leave our agency and start your own, you'll take a piece of this with you. We can hopefully change the way consultant agencies work in our business Um, and and at least have a different approach so that we can be more inclusive of people of color who aren't often given the opportunity to sit in a C-suite. I looked at resumes for lots of candidates for our office that they had been lower levels at consulting agencies and they'd gone off and managed a campaign. They came back and they were still a lower level at another consulting agency. And I'm like, what's the problem here? Maybe it was that they were never given the opportunity to grow. Maybe you take that with you. And that, you know what? I'm okay with that. That could be my Jaguar.
1: So I'll translate the sales pitch. Come work for me. It's like going celibate.
0: I would appreciate if we would use that. (laughs) You know, you're giving up one set of problems for another set. Right. Like high. think of like high pressure sales, too. Right. Like,
1: yeah. Another real aspect to sort of recruitment and retention of good people, especially when you're offering shares, but also just in any business is. That the business is doing good work and growing and is sort of a a successful business in the most enlightened way of thinking about that. What are you doing to distinguish yourself from other firms in the space to be a better business in the targeting that you do, in the creative that you do, and in the vision that you hope to have to broaden that so that you can create value in the company in the long run? Because, you know, there could be there could be a sort of static direct mail business that's perfectly good lifestyle for a small number of people. Or there could be something that innovates and pivots and, you know, figures out how to really grow and also do really good work. How how do you think about that?
0: As you pointed out, I, I used to joke especially when I'm out sort of at conferences or I'm meeting people for the first time. They're like, oh, what do you do? I'm like, I run a direct mail business. And they look at me real funny. I go, don't worry, you can't spit any direction in DC and not hit another mail vendor. There's just, there's so many of us. When we stepped back and we did sort of our market analysis, we realized there were probably three or four firms that really dominate the space. We've been working on for about two to three months, a a sort of a client experience or a client journey map. And we went through and looked at where the pinch points were and where are where we heard the most complaints and we combined that with a industry survey we had sent out earlier this year and what we determined was you know there's a couple of things that we feel the market is missing that we wanted to fill number one was a a, a real values driven company so that if a client themselves is values driven they can feel comfortable working with someone who is who is uplifting their voice and uplifting their perspective. I've got one of the best creative directors in the country. He's constantly watching global trends when it comes to design. Um, so we've integrated more client interactions with our design teams, um, client interactions with our, um, with our targeting teams. And as we look at the new suites of products we wanted to, 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 to develop, we're pushing the industry and pushing the discussion with those Peers and colleagues in other areas. Um, for example, a large discussion most people will know me for is uh, sample construction on polls. I believe there's there's some fundamental things we need to look at in our constructions of samples. And because at the end, I'm the end user of that product, right? Like I have to target off of polls, so I'm starting to weigh in more on sample construction with my polling colleagues and pressing them to talk me through. How construction goes, we tell that to the client up front. Like we are integrating into all of your areas because if I'm the end user, right, I need to know where the raw materials are coming from and how they're getting processed, and then pushing them out so that you have the right message going to the right voters. So when we sit down in a room with a client, we make sure to show them where we think their win comes from. We have a a way of doing that with them, where we think the win comes from, and um, how we get to that win, uh, and then how we would push the team to start looking at that. Um, there are various methods we have to do that um, and and that we use. And sometimes it's, just, it's successful. And then sometimes people just want one of the big guys. And that's totally fine too, right? That's how we feel we are going to be breaking into this market. That's how we feel we're going to be pushing uh, – pushing so that our clients are satisfied and that they're, they they can leave on election day, win or lose, and say, you know what? We did everything we needed to do to win. I ran a campaign I was very, very proud of. Um, I never had to sacrifice my values to try to win a cheap vote, which is sort of our general thought is that there's a lot of value sacrificing going on out there to try to win cheap votes we're never winning. So, um, you know, they can walk out and say, you know what? This year might not have been the year, but in two years, I see the path even clearer now because you learn a lot in your first race. So that's where we're headed.
1: Who are these firms that dominate the space that you're thinking of? And are there any of them that you don't think do a great job or don't operate as ethically as you would like? Or do you hold them in high regard? How do you view the competitive market at that high end?
0: They wouldn't have gotten there if they're not good at what they do, right? That The market dominance that someone like, Uh, Ed Peavy and Mission Control has in the direct mail space is unbelievably impressive. I mean, we can all look at him and say, like, that's where we want to be in our careers one day, that kind of just sheer dominance that he has. I don't think he's done anything wrong. I think, if anything, he's done everything right. And that's what it got him to where he is. I mean, I worked with him when I was a manager once. He's the most classy example. Um, You know, uh, Josh Grossfeld is a very, very, very good friend of mine. His firm has taken off at Wildfire. Um, He and I share a lot of similar views on targeting. Uh, he just happens to be my competitor, which is which is, just sucks because having people who know sort of your approach and, and agree with you, but also doing it at a much bigger firm is always disheartening. But uh, you know we have our differences on the types of companies we're running, but he's doing everything right for him. I think everyone that's in this space uh, – I worked for Kevin Mack. Kevin Mack taught me an unbelievable amount uh, about a huge company because when I was with them, they were Mack Crowns. He, he really taught me a lot. And I owe, I mean, I would say, I don't owe, owe him like I owe chattered Chatterton, but he did give me a lot of insights. Um, and his firm is right for him and what they're trying to do. The thing I love about these big shops is that they know what they do and they're good at it. I'm a small shop trying to make my way and I'm trying to carve out a different niche that I don't know that they would be good at because it's a niche that I have in my head that I want to follow. They've found their niche. They're dominating their market space. They're doing a great job, putting out great work. Like I said, you can't spit in this town and not hit a direct mail vendor. It's about what's separating those tiers. And I do feel that the the approach we're taking and where we want to see the market go and where we think the market's going, I think is going to separate us in the future. Today, no, I'm still who I am. They are still who they are. As the markets evolve, Maybe things start to shift and change. I don't know, but no, I, I have the utmost respect for most of my comp- for, if not all my competition, um, because they are where they are for a reason. One thing that I've always been really bad at um, that I always worked to improve is my ability to network the way that Ed does. Ed in his shop, if you need a, if you wanted to get a job in Democratic politics when I was coming up, Ed was who you called, and Ed helped you find a job. And I think that that kind of networking served him tremendously it also helped the re- you know the recipient on the other end too that's just not something i've ever been good at but it's just different right
1: so i mean one of the ways that one comes up from smaller to beat bigger shops is by you know innovating with technology or otherwise in a way that can distinguish you sometimes you can charge less Sometimes you can find niches that are not well seen and and uh, and kind of provide a different kind of service to them that fits what's what's your strategy?
0: as we're growing and and uh, as we are looking at ourselves internally we're discovering who we are as an agency. Liz was uh, the majority shareholder at the old firm she drove the culture at the old firm um, and when you took. Liz out of this equation. And then the rest of this team kind of steps forward and can shine their lights. We're finding that there's just some slightly different fabric now, right? Like the the glue that was holding us together there is now different than the glue that's binding us as as this new agency. And I feel like we are discovering niches that we can thrive in. Just one example. We are the only firm that flipped a congressional seat in 2020 with Carolyn Bordeaux down in Georgia. We are the only direct mail firm that flipped uh, house seats in North Carolina. We were one of two firms that flip seats in Georgia. We have uh, a very unique niche when it comes to challengers because our targeting, when you think about the place where challengers and incumbents sit, our targeting is showing challengers a path that wasn't seen before and that couldn't be quite replicated before, right? So they are hungry and eager to do something that the people before them who kept losing didn't do. Incumbents, on the other hand, you know, they've won before. So they, as I've often said, and, and Liz was notorious for saying to me, you know, the bad thing about candidates is they don't know why they win and they don't know why they lose. The truth is, is even as political pundits, we often don't know why they win and why they lose. If you're an incumbent, you've reinforced some type of behavior. You know, you got that carrot, you won, so you kind of stick with it. You're less adverse to taking risk. So what our goal is. We find this dominant space within the challenger niche, if you will. Julie, my my director of client services, she was the former ED of Emerge Virginia. She started the Emerge Virginia program. That's a lot of first-time candidates, especially in the past 10 years with uh, Donald Trump and Me Too and then the 2018 elections. That's a lot of first-time candidates jumping into the pool. So what we looked at was like, if we can get challengers that take our approach elected and then our competition can't match us in that space, then maybe those challenges are now, you know, getting the ingrained practice that we brought with us into their re-election campaigns. And they're sharing it with their peers and colleagues say, look, you know, if you're worried about your re-election because of redistricting, for example, you need to look at the way campaign X looks at your electorate and find a new path or find a path that could be an alternative path to what you've done in the past. Because with new lines come new voters. And that's the very core of what we start our targeting on. Which are voter churn that occurs between elections, right? So, the niche that we're kind of falling into is kind of there right now. We're kind of seeing that as a path, and we're we're thinking to ourselves, this might be something worth you know doubling down on. And then if that market share, you know, grows two, three, five percent, all of a sudden, you know, if we can grow our market share in that space with a with a year like this that's coming up in twenty two with redistricting. The thing about redistricting is no one's incumbents, right? Like you might be an incumbent, but you definitely got new voters or you lost some voters in the process. So maybe there's more out there for us to, to take our our wares to.
1: Joe, is there a question I didn't ask you that I should have?
0: No, not really. I mean, you started uh, VAN, didn't you?
1: I started NGP.
0: On the financial side, right? Yeah. Sorry, I they're, it's such a monopoly now. It's hard to refer to them as, I think of them, in the day when they were two separate companies. No, I don't think there was anything you didn't ask. I would like to ask you a question if that's okay. Sure. Can you talk to me a little bit about when you were starting NGP and you said you've started several companies. As you grew in your sort of entrepreneurial spirit, I'm assuming each time you hit challenges, was there ever a core or a thread that tied between all of them? That was a fear of an unknown or or something that every time you started a company, you're like, I gotta get over this hump.
1: The main humps, I would say, were in personal development. So, like, you know, in, like, how do I learn to manage better? How do I learn to manage myself better? How do I grow? NGP grew a lot over the years, and it's a different kind of company, a product company, um, than a services company like, like yours. But for me... I didn't know a lot about running a company, almost nothing at the beginning, but on the other hand, it was just me. I think the, the growth that was most challenging and most interesting was internal for me. And that included, like, how do you hire? How do you delegate? How do you cope with uh, communication as things change in size? How do you deal with competition? It's endless and interesting. And I think one thing that I found helpful was entrepreneur forums where I got to talk to other people who ran other types of businesses. And if you don't do that, I would recommend that. Yeah.
0: I uh, actually just this year, I signed up for the entrepreneur organization, EO, um, which has been great. I I know there's other ones out there. Um, This was actually recommended by a colleague of mine, uh, John rally in Nashville. He's part of the Nashville chapter.
1: I've talked to John.
0: Yeah. And, and this has been, it's been great because my, the, the core group of people that I interact with through the organization, they are not political. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the professional, personal growth that occurs when you when you break outside of your industry and see that entrepreneurs are facing the same challenges that you're facing just through different lenses and then how they attack. I've started reading a lot more uh, sort of entrepreneurial-based books through these organizations. People would make recommendations like Good to Great by Jim Collins or, or Scaling Up by Vern Harnish. right? Those types of books have helped me look at my staff and my team and say, okay, I have a leadership team. I never thought I would have a leadership team, right? Like a core group of people that we we operate the company as a unit. I was nervous delegating that kind of authority of my company with my money over, and then came to realize, like, you can't be successful if you don't do that. You've got to trust your team, and you've got to put people around you that you can trust. And then in self-reflection, I've got to let go. Similar to like what I was saying about the managers for delegate races and congressional races, you can't do it all. If you have a $5 million congressional race or a $10 million congressional race, there's no way in hell you're doing all that. You got to give space to breathe, letting go of some of those things. And then, you know, one day I'll open my email and a project that we had talked about is there. I never followed up on it. I never had to check in on it. It's there because my team is doing what they need to do because they want to see this company succeed too. And that's something I didn't know could exist, right? For me, a job was a job was a job. To see people vested and buying into a vision has changed everything.
1: Well, it's uh, been enjoyable to talk to you and I've learned a lot about what you do and, and how. Anything else you want to say?
0: No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, I hope this is the first of many conversations. I'm very interested to pick your entrepreneurial brain more often.
1: Happy to chat anytime. Just send me an email. (laughs) That was Joe Lestingi. Joe was at campaignxco.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for a great battlefield in places where podcasts are found.